Good morning. Um, for those of you who are new and who don't know me, um, don't worry, the, the star of School of Rock, Kung, Kung Fu Panda and King Kong has not just walked on the stage. My name is in fact James, um, and I have the great privilege of uh, being on staff at this wonderful church, the South of Southern Vineyard. I'm also married to Jane, who is uh, sitting up the front here, patiently supporting me as I speak to you this morning. Um, and we are expecting our first baby imminently. Uh, Jane is 39 weeks pregnant tomorrow. So hopefully the baby will wait for me to get through the sermon this morning. Um, but obviously that's dependent upon how long I choose to talk for. Um, Kate Woodward, who leads this church, had um, a word, an impression, uh, a prophecy. She, she heard from the Lord for me, she, she thought this week. Um, and continuing on the birthing theme, she, she felt that I too was pregnant. Um, thankfully, you'll be pleased to hear, not with a baby, but with a word for this church and its, and its wonderful people, you guys. Um, and I think she's right. I feel that God has indeed um, laid something on my heart um, for you all this morning um, and for us and for me. And so here is my attempt at interpreting what God is saying to us as best I can. Um, if you have a Bible, which I imagine most of you have got phones instead, um, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at that in a little bit. Um, and in, in these verses, we're going to look at, um, we are introduced, or we're rather, we're, we're reintroduced to the church in Ephesus. And the book of Revelation is an account um, of an experience that the Apostle John had while in some kind of trance-like state. I'm not entirely sure exactly what that means or um, what they're talking about in the first chapter of Revelation. But all I know is that John um, saw the Lord. And the Lord gave him this message to the church at Ephesus. And now to give you a frame of reference, and you might want to read the, um, the 19th chapter of Acts at some point, which gives you an account of Paul's time there. But Ephesus was one of the principal seaports um, of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey and Armenia. Um, and it was, a, it was a very well-populated city. I think often we think of these biblical communities um, as very sort of small villages, but I want you to know that what we're talking about here is a town of about 100,000 people, which, you know, is a good-sized city at any time in history. It, also, it was also a very cultured city. It had the third-largest library in the world and one of the largest medical schools um, at Pergamon, which was just inland which is one of the suburbs of Ephesus. And so it really was an important place, and it was an important community from a commerce standpoint and from a cultural standpoint. And when the Apostle Paul went there, as we, as we see in Acts 19, the community around that part of Asia um, was well known because of a hospital called the Asclepion, which practiced a form of medicine. And they had a reputation around the world for never having lost a patient. The words, the place where death cannot enter, were written above the entrance. And it was famous across the Mediterranean. 
As in those days, obviously, people didn't have the medicine that we have today, and they had a tendency to die from diseases that they couldn't control. And it was actually, but it was actually largely and ultimately a place that conned rich people out of their money. And they had a few basic operations or cons that they would pull. And they had a gatekeeper at this particular hospital, somebody at the front door who had the title of saviour. And this guy had the job of screening in and out all those applicants that came to the hospital. And what he would do was literally screen out the sick people and screen in the rich ones who weren't sick, thus keeping their reputation intact. And it was ultimately more of a, more of a drunk tank than anything, somewhere um, for, to allow people to rehabilitate from alcoholism to get people dried out. And so people would stay there for a while and the hospital would run a number of different cons to try and get these people. In one of them, they would have this small empty pool, kind of like a hot tub. And it would, it would be out in like, the sunshine on a patio and they would, they would get people to sit in the dry, hot, empty pool. And they would, they would tell people, if the pool filled with water, that they would get healed. And it was a miracle. And it only happened on really special occasions and to really special people, rich people. Um, and so what they would do was they would, they would get people to sacrifice to, to this god, Asclepios. And they would say, if you, if you sacrifice to him, he'll, he'll heal you. So they would sacrifice this god and then they would get in the hot tub. And, they would, um, and what would happen was at the top they had this drain. And the priest would give the sign to connect this drain and this little trickle of water would start coming down, except it would come through the side of the, of the rock pool. It would come through the rocks. So all the person in the pool would see was the rocks perspiring. And the person in the pool would, would freak out and they'd go, oh, it's a miracle. I'm healed. And then they'd take their money. And they had all sorts of these things going on. They had, they had one where they would get people to go into this tunnel. Um, and they'd hook up these sort of 60-foot long cylinders like, like hoses. And the priest would, would stand at the top and they'd say, My Clister, you're healed. And he'd freak out and he'd get healed and he'd give them more money. And they had all sorts of things like this going on. But as a result of this, people heard about the hospital and they would sell everything they had. They would arrive in Ephesus and go up to the hospital, and they'd get turned down by the Savior. And so people were broke by the time they got there, and they, they got stuck in Ephesus. And so by the time Paul arrived in Ephesus, there were people all over the community, literally dying in the streets. And the rich people were really offended by the people dying in the streets. They were all, there was a bit of a mess. And it says in Acts 19 that Paul began a healing ministry. And he had a posture of, my saviour won't turn you down. My saviour doesn't want your money. My saviour will heal you. And as a result, the result was that Paul had such, so much business that he just couldn't be in enough places at once. And so people started taking his clothes. I think it says in... Acts that they, they take his handkerchief, which is disgusting, 
um, in order, just in order to get healed, just to touch something of his. And as a result, there was this monumental revival in that whole region. Thousands upon thousands of people came to faith. And many New Testaments were planted. The Church of Colossae, for example, where we get the, the book of Colossians. And, and there was this ripple effect um, that came from Ephesus. And when the Vineyard Church first began in California, back when it wasn't a Vineyard Church, it was actually a Calvary Chapel, the church experienced a similar sort of growth. Through um, the Jesus People movement, people like Chuck Smith and, at Calvary Chapel and John Mimber, they saw in the first 10 years more than 100,000 people converted. Hundreds of churches have been planted as a result as the ripple effects of the move of God that happened in those times when they were baptizing young hippies, literally in the Pacific Ocean. And this church that you're in today, the South West London Vineyard, and all of those churches that we have planted, that we talked about on the 30th anniversary, are ripple effects from that move of God. Now, as great as the church was, in Ephesus, and it really was a great church. The move of God in that part of the world was, was profound. Yet here we are, years later, and Jesus is causing this message to be written to those churches. So we're going to look at Revelation 2 now, which should appear on the screen, so you just look up there. Revelation 2 says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we have to remember that the, the church in Ephesus had started hundreds of other churches. And they were similar to the churches that, that have began in this movement. They were started largely by laymen who, who've been converted in the church with little Bible education. And so there were all these baby, baby churches, and they, and they needed a lot of help. And the church in Ephesus had a good reputation around the Christian world. They'd, they'd heard of the church in Ephesus in Jerusalem, you know. They said they've got a great drummer with a great left hand but in spite of that a generation went by and the church cooled and the church declined and began to die now you see god doesn't have any grandchildren every generation needs to be one to jesus in and of itself even for me and jane with our new baby boy i can't expect that our baby being raised in church, hearing us pray, watching us as Christians, I can't expect him to grow up and just assume that he's going to become a Christian. 
for all of our kids in this church. It's a, it's a battle from the day they're born. And everything in our society, and it seems everything they come into contact with, will, cont- will contaminate and work to draw them away from the relationship with Jesus that we hope they'll have. Every now and then we, um, we have baby dedications in this church. Um, I don't know if you've, you've been here when we've had one. And I, don't, I don't think we always understand the enormity of what, what we're actually doing there. We often take it for granted. But as we ask God to bless the family, as they commit to raise their children to follow Jesus, what we are actually doing is a declaration of war. We're declaring war on the one who has declared war on them. And from that day onwards, the enemy tries to snatch those kids away. And here is a church that, with all of its glory and all of the work that it had done, I mean, just look at the things the Lord reminds them them of in this passage. He, He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind that on my tombstone. I'd be pretty happy. I think that's pretty good. If God said, James, I know your deeds... I know your toil and your perseverance, you'd be, you'd be pretty happy with that. Those are good qualities, good things. And then it says to them, and you cannot tolerate evil men. I think that is to say they weren't allowing evil men to come and minister among them or function in their churches. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And the assumption is that they've turned them away. And possibly, most impressively, it says... And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And I think the church in Ephesus had experienced lots of persecution. And it says, and you have not grown weary. I don't know about you, but I get pretty weary without persecution. I don't know what I'd do if I faced real persecution. They say that the church flourishes, but I'm assuming that that's after they've got, of, got rid of weaklings like, like me. You know, the first purge or something. In the fourth verse, it says this, though. But I have this against you. In spite of all that they have attained, in spite of all those values, and they really are positive things, and Jesus isn't setting them up so he could let them down. He's not, he's not trying to say three nice things before telling them what he really thinks. Do you know that one? I've got this, and I've got this, and I've got this. I like you, but I don't think God has that in his nature. He was sincerely, not flatteringly, recounting the things he liked and valued in their faith and their work in Ephesus. But then he says three really important things, and I think that they are three things that you and I need to be stirred up in once in a while. Neil spoke last week, who um, Neil also leads this church with, with Kate, his wife, um, and he, uh, last, he spoke last week about our need to look up, look back, and look forward. And this pertains to the first of these, that we need to turn our eyes towards Jesus. And I think that's true, and I think we know that. We agree with Neil. We, we know that we need to look up. We need to turn our faces towards Jesus again. So how do we do it? And so the three things that are highlighted here, I hope here, will help show us how to look up again. So it says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Now, this is one of those verses that is often quoted, and a lot of you may have heard it misquoted. Misquoted so that it says, you have lost your first love. How many of you have heard it like that? Try and keep you engaged. How many of you have heard anything ever in your lives? (laughs) Okay, just three of you. How many of you are awake right now? Not very many of you. (laughs) Okay, it's a good sign. Okay, it's often quoted lost, but the text doesn't say that. It says left. You've left your first love. It's it's not something we, we misplace. You see, when you are not in that place where you are uptight and close to Jesus and in love with him, it isn't him that moves away. It's not Jesus that tires of the, of the love affair. It's not him who grows weary in the relationship. It's not him that's drawn away. It's, it's us. And then he says to the church in Ephesus, and he starts with this first point, therefore remember from where you have fallen. And as we celebrated the 30th anniversary and engaged with that service a few weeks ago, I spent a bit of time remembering my first time at this, at this church. I grew up in another church, actually, um, but it wasn't until I was around the age of sort of 16, 17, that I really discovered Jesus for myself, I don't think. And it was when I came to this church, 16 or so years ago, if you can believe it, and I was overwhelmed when I came in this, in this place. I sat up in the balcony up there, and I was overwhelmed by the presence of God. And... I wanted to go to everything that this church put on. I hated missing church. I would orient my life around going to church and making sure I was there every Sunday and going to house group every week. But at some point along the journey, something started to happen whereby the worship, spending time with the Lord, and all all the things that we do, all the things that we take for granted, had become commonplace. And I loved, I really loved to worship the Lord. And I would spend hours on my own, on my guitar, learning and singing songs to Jesus. And they were some of the most profound worship times for me. And that's why I learned guitar in the first place. I didn't learn guitar until I came to this church. I wanted to learn to worship. Now doing the role that I'm doing, I I lead worship most weeks and being in the band. It can be easy to get stuck in the mechanics of it all, whereby you're pulling together a worship set or worshipping on a Sunday. It's just, it's just something we do. And it can become commonplace, and I can forget the thing that I once loved. And I see this in others of us too. People in this congregation who are burning bright hot for God. People who are desperately engaging with Jesus and, and with his church. And then, again, something happens and they become tired they become bored and they just start going through the motions of their faith jesus says to the church at ephesus remember therefore from where you have fallen remember where you were do you remember those days do you remember your first love Do you remember when the the love affair with Jesus was just too hot to cool down? Do you remember when you just couldn't get enough of Jesus? And then he says, if you do that, then do this second thing. 
remember, and then repent. Now, all repent means is turn around. If you've pulled away from Jesus, then all you need to do is turn back. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that he will take 10 steps for every step you take. Jesus is an anxious lover. He is. He's passionate. He's committed. And in fact, you know, a lot of times when we're wandering away, he's just a step or two behind us. He's saying, come on, let's, let's make up, let's be friends again. And that's what it means. Repent means turn around and come back to the person of Jesus and the relationship that you once knew. And I want you to know that, I, that you can't stimulate any of this by winding yourself up. I can't make you feel guilty enough to fall in love with Jesus. I can't preach a harsh enough, surf, uh, harsh enough sermon. I can't speak for long enough or fast enough to get you excited about the Lord. But you can. And that's all that required is that you remember and you repent. Just turn around and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Let's make up and make this thing right. And then it says, and if you stop there, by the way, um, that's functional. That's, uh, a lot of people do that, and, it's, and, it, and it works, and, and they are better off. But Jesus isn't satisfied with that because there's another step. And it says, remember, repent, and I'm substituting a word here. It says, and return to the deeds that you were doing. Turn around and go back to what you were doing. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Now I'm not going to go on to the, the warning that's here because I just, don't, I just don't think that it's needed for our church. I don't think our church is, is that unhealthy. I don't, I don't think that everybody is in this place. I think some of us are. I think some of us have gotten weary in well-doing. Some of us have gotten tired in the midst of it all. Now, I don't mean so tired that we're disgruntled or upset or out of it or in any way negative. But what I'm hearing and what I think I'm hearing in my own heart, and I'm sorry if I'm transferring this onto you, but what I'm hearing is that I've gotten used to the glory of God. And that scares me. It scares me when I'm used to the presence of God and taking it for granted. It scares me that when I'm praying for people and seeing them get filled, that it's sort of commonplace. The excitement not there. And so what I'm saying is this. I think we have a vibrant, healthy church here. But I think that some of us have moved just, just ever so away from our first love. And that we have done it by millimeters and degrees. And this week, as I've been looking at all this stuff, I've spent some time on my face, literally, before the Lord. And, and I said, God, forgive me. And I've had a great time with Jesus. So don't leave your first love. Return to him that saved you. Because he really is a worthy saviour. Why don't you stand and we're going to minister to one another. Could the uh, band make their way back up?